Okay, good morning. The Shabbos, we have the privilege of reading Parshas Vayishlach. And uh, just to give a sense of context, before we examine the Sukkim themselves, before we delve into the verses we're going to study, we uh, ended last week's Parsha Vayetze with uh, Yaakov taking now his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and all of his children, and fleeing from his father-in-law's home. He had now spent... Uh, he had spent a combined 20 years there, right? He spent 14 years working for Rachel and Leah and another 6 years working for Lavan. He determined it was time to go. It was time to leave. Lavan was a negative influence on his family. And after 20 years, it was time to break free. I mentioned at uh, Shalom Zachar last Friday night that what exactly was the fundamental dispute between Yaakov and Lavan? What gave Lavan, indi- uh, Yaakov rather, indication that it was time to leave? So uh, perhaps one can argue that the distinction between the two of them was the notion, a, a very, very fundamental philosophical difference about how to live life. Lavan lived life for the here and now. It was a very hedonistic, materialistic, uh, pleasure-seeking life. All Lavan cared about was pleasure, was riches, was wealth, right now. Yaakov is invested in the future. Yaakov is invested in continuity. Yaakov is invested in a legacy. And I mentioned, uh, in fact, you could see this in the very etymologies of their names. Rav Goldvicht from Yeshiva University, I once heard him suggest that the name Lavan comes, it's a contraction of the words, Lo Ben. Lavan is Lo Ben. No child, no son, no continuity, no concern for the future. Just living the here and now, just living for the moment, just living for the pleasures of, of, uh, of the immediate moment. On the other hand, in contrast, you have Yaakov. Yaakov, whose life is characterized, Yaakov, who very much seems obsessed, beginning in the beginning of last week's Parsha and continuing through the end of Sefer Bracious, with playing with rocks. Yaakov has a dream and there's 12 rocks under his head and they combine and become one. He wakes up and he makes a monument out of stones. And Yaakov, when he leaves Lavan, what does he do? Each of his sons, he takes stones and he makes a monument. He gives it one name and Lavzan gives it another name. He's constantly playing with these stones. What's Yaakov's obsession with stones? There's a lot we could talk about. We're not going to right now. It's last week's parasha. But the Hebrew word for stone is Evan. Evan is a contraction of two words. Av and Ben. And Evan stands for continuity. It stands for future generations. It stands for playing it forward. In fact, we have the custom when we go to an unveiling or when we visit the cemetery in general, what do we do to affirm our commitment to the life of our parent, our grandparent, our loved one? We take a stone. We take an even and we place it on the monument because an even is av and ben. We affirm our commitment to our parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle or whomever that we will continue in their way. They are no longer here but they have left a legacy by placing that stone, the av and the ben. There's a lot more we could say about this. But that was the fundamental deceit between Yaakov and Lavan. Yaakov is committed to the future. Lavan is committed to the here and now, to his pleasure. And that brings us to the beginning of this week's Parsha, Parshas Vayishlach. So now... Yeah. Uh, we are, I'll, I'll tell you in a second. I just want to give a context to the beginning of Vayishlach. It's page 170 in the art scroll on the stone Chumash. So Yaakov takes leave and he's ready to return home. It's been 36 years, 36 long, hard years since Yaakov um, took the blessings from his brother, fooled his father with the advice and, and help of his mother. It's been 36 long, long years. And now Yaakov is going to be returning home. But before he returns home, of course he's going to have a confrontation with Esav, with his big brother, or little brother, depends if you're following chronology or birthright. But he's going to have a conflict, a confrontation with his brother. He needs to reconcile. You can't come home when you're not talking to your brother. You can't come home when you think your brother is ready to kill you. Slit your throat. So he's got to reconcile with his brother. So Esau advances to attack, and Yaakov prepares in three ways. And in so doing, our rabbis teach us that this is a precedent and a model for how we, the Jewish people, the progeny of Yaakov, should prepare for every conflict we have with our enemies. Military preparations. We need to, we need to flex our muscles, show our might, be prepared to fight. Number two, prayer. We need to recognize ultimately our destiny is determined. By the one above, by a Baruch Hu, we need to pray. And number three, gifts. Gifts can, today's terminology, one could express that as diplomacy. <coughs> diplomacy. So the three, uh, the three um, approaches that Yaakov employs are very, very much 
necessary today for the Jewish people, the state of Israel. And they are military preparedness, military preparations, prayer, and diplomacy. Yaakov does all of that. He's on his way. And uh, he returns. He forgets something. This is what we're going to talk about in a moment. He goes back for it. It's at night. He ends up wrestling with an angel. He uh, wrestles through the night with this angel. Who is this angel? What are they wrestling about? We'll talk about that today. Those are the psukim we're going to examine today. And as the result, as a result of this wrestling match, the angel injures him, his sciatic nerve, his leg, his gid hanasha, and we are um, instructed we're not allowed to eat it until today. Yaakov and Esav actually meet. They embrace one another. It's a somewhat disingenuous embracement. Esav is really... Uh, not fully forgiving and ready to reconcile, but at least superficially they show as if they are reconciled. And Esav says, hey, let's go together. Yaakov says, you know, why don't you go ahead of me? I'm not really, I, I can't keep up with you. But what he really means is, I'm not interested in keeping up with you. And uh, they go their separate ways. Yaakov arrives in Shechem. His daughter Dina is abducted there um, by the members of that community. Yaakov's family learns of it. And of course, you can imagine they're outraged. That their sister was abducted and raped. And they therefore go ahead, Levi and Shimon, and deceive the people of Shechem. They tell them, no problem, you can marry our sister, you can marry into our family, just join our people, here's what you have to do, a little something called a circumcision. They of course circumcise themselves on the third day when they're weakest. They, uh, they're attacked by Shimon and Levi, who ultimately decimate Shechem. Yaakov is very dissatisfied with their strategy and is fearful of the implications long term for having done so. Yaakov goes to Beit El, then uh, we have the death of Rivka, his mother. God blesses and renames Yaakov. Yisrael, Benjamin is born, and now his beloved wife Rachel dies, and she's buried along the way. And, um, and then uh, the Parsha heads towards uh, conclusion. Yaakov and, and Yitzchak are reunited. Yitzchak dies, and Esau separates himself from Yaakov, and that's the end of the Parsha. Okay, so the part I want to study today, leaving off, I believe, where we were last year, is chapter 32, Perak Lamed Beis, Pasag Yud Dalet, verse 14. 32, 14. I believe that's what we were up to last year. It's also the same place as Sheni. It's the second Aliyah in the Parsha. And it corresponds with page 172, 173 in the Stone Chumash. Okay, everyone sees where we are? Says the Pasuk, where we are in terms of the narrative is that uh, Yaakov is with his family and they're making their way towards Esav to reconcile. And they're on the journey and they, they, uh, they camp out for the night. They spend the night there. And Yaakov takes from that which is in his hand a gift to give to his brother Esav. Now what's unusual in that Pasuk? He's sleeping there. Okay, he's got to sleep somewhere. They're journeying. It's nightfall. It's time to rest. Good. And he takes a mincha. He takes a gift to give Esav to Esav. First of all, Esav Achiv. Why does it have to tell us Esav is his brother? By this time in the story, we know who Esav is. So it could either say to Esav, or it could say to his brother. Why does it have to say Esav, his brother? What's the point of Vayalan? I mean doesn't add anything. It just talks about whatever the gift is going to be. Whatever well, Vayal and Shem is that he spent the night there and that's setting up the story that's about to unfold but in terms of his having gone later. back. I mean, this follows the... Correct, that's the a good point. Yeah, the gifts should have, the list of what he's giving as gifts should have been included in the threefold preparation of the military preparations, the prayers, and the gift. Why is it introduced with Vayal and Shem Balai Lahahu? It was only when he, when he encamped. Okay, so let's see. So, so the ace of his brother, why the redundancy, repetitiveness, I didn't see anyone talk about. I'm just sharing it with you because again, the sensitivity to the text, whenever you see a redundancy or an extra word, an extra vowel, there should be a sensitivity. But what did bother me is something that I'm happy to tell you bothered Rashi also. Vayikach min Yaakov took, where did he get these gifts? He got these gifts from that which had come into his hand. Well, what does that mean? As opposed to what? Again, whenever the Torah tells us something that you wouldn't expect to see, it means to tell us that le- to exclude the opposite, lest you think the opposite. So Rashi was clearly bothered by this question. And Rashi says, Habab Yado, he took the gifts from that which came into his hand. Birishuso, Yaakov took gifts that he owned. He didn't steal. 
he didn't borrow, he didn't beg, he took his own property. And he gave from his own property as a gift. So the Medrash says what it means is he gave precious jewelry, precious jewels, which normally a person bundles and keeps in his hand. So biado doesn't mean in his ownership, because of course one would never consider that Yaakov would give a gift from something he didn't own. One would never entertain the possibility that he stole. So the Medrash says, you don't need to say biado, his hand, to tell us that it was his ownership. Biado means literally in his hand. And what's literally in his hand? Stones and precious jewels. Or davar achar min haba biado min hachulin. Shinat al maser so this is also interesting. Where did Yaakov take these gifts from? So what did we read in last week's parsha? If you recall, at the end of our discussion in last week's parsha, towards the beginning of the parsha, Yaakov wakes up from this dream and he says, "Oh, there's a God in this place. I had no idea. Wonderful. Good to know God is here. Great." Uh, God says to him, Yaakov, you have nothing to worry about. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stick with you your entire life. I'm going to take care of you. Everything's going to be safe. You're going to inherit this land. It's going to be all good. Everything's great. Go on your way. And what does Yaakov say? He doesn't say, oh, shkoyach, thank you, God. That's a pretty big relief. It's good to know. He doesn't say that. What does Yaakov say? Vayidur Yaakov neder lemor. Yaakov makes an oath and he says, God, here's how I feel about the situation. If you're with me, if you provide food, and clothing, and we spoke about the significance then of food and clothing in the rest of the book of Gracious. If you provide food and clothing, and you bring me back to my father's home, then, so then you'll be for me a God. Then you'll be for me a God. And how does he end it? And how does that boss again, that commitment, that neder, this oath, which seems out of... This is one of the biblical precedents for miser, for tithing. Yaakov separates from his wealth, that which he had earned in the home of love and his father-in-law, he separates a portion, a percentage, which he will use in the dedication of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So Rashi here tells us, where did he get these gifts? You might have thought, whose portion, which bank account did he take it from? So Yaakov says, I have my general bank account where I put my paycheck, and I also created a charitable foundation. I've separated 10% of all my income that goes immediately into my charitable foundation, my charitable account, and from there, God, I do your bidding. So now you might have thought, where did Yaakov take the money to pay for these gifts? Which account does it come out of? So I might have thought, this comes out of the holy account, charitable account. He's using it for a holy purpose. This is part of the destiny of the Jewish people. He's going to reconcile with his brother Esau and he's going to come home and so on and so on. No. Says Rashi, you know why it says, that which came into his hand? To tell us that which came into his hand for his use, not the consecrated money. Not the money that was designated for holy use. He used minachulin, that which was for his mundane use. Because even though he had taken maser, he had tithed. Since he Yaakov was scrupulous in his accounting and used uh, only the money that was left for his personal use to be able to reconcile. That's how Rashi explains minabbiyado from that which his car had come into his hand. Um. Perhaps you can suggest, perhaps you can suggest, and so what did he give? Let's, let's keep reading for a moment. So Yaakov gave all of these goods, 200 goats and 20 he goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 nursing camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 she-donkeys and 10 he-donkeys. That's a very nice barbecue dinner. I don't know what that is, but that's a very nice uh, amount of animals. I don't know that net worth of it, the value of it, but that's what he gave. That's what he gave. Look at the Balaturim, Rav Yaakov ben Asher. Kol teva pasuk b'mem. Every in, in Pasik Tezvav in verse 15, every single word in that verse ends with the same letter. Which letter? Mem. Similarly, Similarly, we have a verse in the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, which is talking about the uh, Korba Mincha, the flower offering. In that verse, talking about the sacrifices, every word in that verse also ends with the letter Mem. Hadoron Tafkuf Nun Behemos. So Balaturim says, 
really Yaakov, if he was truly trusting in Hashem, should have had faith. God said, everything's going to be alright. It's all good. You don't need to send gifts. You don't need to kowtow. You don't need to kowtow. You don't need to... Uh, you don't need to bribe or engage in this, in this disingenuous diplomacy. Because God says, I've got you covered. And Yaakov didn't fully trust. So he sends these gifts to cover his tracks. So the Balaturim says, how many gifts did he send? How many did he send? 550. That's the same number of korbanos, of the sacrifices that are offered out as a year. And just like every letter in this verse ends with mem, so too every, every word in this verse ends with the letter mem, so too every word in the verse in Bamidbar, min chasam iniskehem, which recounts the total sacrifices which are given, ends with the letter mem. It creates an analogy between the two, says the Baal to tell us that because Yaakov spent his money when it was unnecessary, we spend our money dedicating it to Hashem. Because Yaakov spent his money violating his faith in Hashem, so to say, because he used it to give gifts to Asim when he should have trusted Hashem, we therefore have to use our money in these korbanos and these sacrifices and these offerings to reflect our trust in Hashem. So the Baal Turim shows that cute connection well, between the two. We have to do something also. We have to make an effort. Right. But who says that maybe this was a little bit uh, exaggerated, a little bit too much? Not as a miracle, but Teva. In other words, you do what you have to do. Right. Okay, yeah, so. God will help you because you help yourself. God will help you if you do what's necessary to help yourself. But the Balaturim understands it, that uh, maybe it was a little bit of an exaggerated effort on uh, on Yaakov's part. Okay, continuing. Verse 17. So he gave it in the hands of his servants to deliver to Esav. Eder, Eder, Levado. He gave it to the servants. Um, each went separately. He said, I want all of you to go ahead of me. He broke them up into three groups. You should all go ahead of me. And I want you to create a healthy spacing between the groups. So in other words, you go ahead of me. And after a few hours or a certain amount of distance, the next group come. And after a certain amount of time or a certain amount of distance, the next group come. And only then will I come with my family. Now why did he create this distance between them? How much is the distance, by the way? Rashi says, Either the length of a day or less that it takes to travel, and I'll be right there behind you. And place a revach, the revach tasimu, place a distance between. What was the, pers- the purpose of creating this gap, this distance between the groups who were bringing the gifts to Esau? So here we have a day, well, here we have a machlokas between Rashi and the and his grandson and the Rashbam. Rashi says the revach tasimu eider lefnei chaveru malei ayin kedei lazbiya eno sharasha ultaveyu ariboy hadoron. Says you know when something's all bunched up and grouped up, you don't appreciate just how vast it is. When something is spread out and it looks like an endless parade, then you're even more impressed. Since his goal was to impress Esav, his goal is perhaps even to intimidate Esav, but minimally to impress Esav, he wants them to spread out the gift, lest Esav see it all as one grouping and say, okay, so there's some gifts here, nice, Yaakov has some wealth. If it's spread out over an hour, half a day, a day, it keeps coming, Esav's going to be blown away, wow, this is impressive. And that will influence Esav's desire to reconcile. So Rashi says this is part of the strategy. Part of the threefold strategy is space it out to impress Esav. That's the goal. Says the Rashbam, Rashi's grandson. This is an honorable way to display oneself. It has nothing to do with Esav. It has nothing to do with trying to intimidate or impress. But derech kavod. This is the proper dignified way to travel. It's the proper dignified way to carry one's camp and to advance forward. So what does he say? He commands the first group. And Yaakov here anticipates what his brother is going to say. Yaakov says, you know, my brother Esav... When you get there, the first group, here are the three things that my brother is going to say to you. Lamiata. Who do you belong to? Whoa, this is a big parade. It's a lot of property. It's a lot of animals. It's a lot of wealth. Who do you belong to? And then he's going to say, Vana Selech, and where are you going? It's a funny place to meet, meet you, halfway in the desert. And where are you headed? And who is this before you? What, what is this for? What, what are you doing with all this stuff? 
These are the three questions he's going to ask. These are the three questions he's going to ask. So what's the answer? The Amarta, the next passage, 19. The Amarta la'avdecha li'akov. They belong to Yaakov. Mincha hi shlucha la'aduni la'esav. They are a gift to you, Esav. V'hinei gamhu acharenu. And, don't worry, Yaakov, its owner, is right behind us. Is right behind us. If you look at the Orachayim HaKadosh, Pasuk Yates, says the Orachayim HaKadosh, Perish keneged omro lemiata tshuva shal avdecha Yaakov. Keneged v'an aselech laholich mincha. V'hu omro mincha shlucha. Ukeneged lemi laadoni laesav. So Yaakov was preparing them. Here are the questions Esav is going to ask and here are the answers that you should give that will satisfy him. The Sforno, Rabbi Vadya Sforno, sees it a little bit differently. Sforno on Pasuk Yitesh, V'yamarta lavdecha liyakov, Tziva shlo yira hashliach has atzmo, Kemakiras Esav, Ushluach elav. Pen yachshav Esav, Shiyada achiv, Shehu alech lekraso, V'shalach wadoran machmas yira. Well, yira hashliach has atzmo, K'moshaluach l'seir, U'kevilti makiras Esav. Sforno says there's actually an entirely opposite approach being used. And again, here you have the beauty of studying Torah where it's somewhat ambiguous and you see a precedent already in our commentators, Shivan Panama Torah, the 70 faces to the Torah, that they actually come to the exact opposite conclusions. Rashi had suggested that the whole philosophy is intimidate or impress Asaph. Let, let him see the length of your parade, of your caravan, He'll be impressed, he'll be intimidated, he'll reconcile. Comes along the Sforno, he says the exact opposite. He says, no, I don't want Esav to think that all of this was sent specifically for him. It should be as if you're headed to Seir, you're going to a place, and you run it. oh, Esav? Is that you? Oh, I haven't seen you in so long. Guess who's coming right with us? Our master, your brother Yaakov. It's, been, it's so funny running into you here. Why? Why did the Sforno interpret the Pesukim in that way? First of all, they're somewhat ambiguous. Ki yifgashcha Esav. When Esav happens upon you, and he will ask you these questions, you should answer, they belong to Yaakov. Mincha yishlucha la'adoni le'esav. I don't know how you're going to deal with that part. They're a gift that are sent to Esav. And he's with us. But v'yamarta la'avdecha le'yakov. When you say they belong to Yaakov, the Sforno says... You don't want Esav thinking they were sent specifically for him. Why? What will Esav think? He's going to think that, 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 that Yaakov's afraid of him. He's going to think Yaakov's afraid of him. Why do you send gifts to somebody? <laughs> to appease them. To appease them. And what does that show? Fear and weakness. So you have here between Rashi and the Sparno, perhaps a different dispute, not just in the text itself, but a fundamental dispute, a dispute that continues until this day, which is, what should your approach to your enemy be? Should you seek to flex your muscle, intimidate them with your military strength, have them recognize that every option is on the table? Or should you send them gifts and diplomacy and extend your hand and perhaps reflect weakness and vulnerability? Let them guess. So here you have a debate between Rashi and the Sforno, maybe not just about how to interpret the Psukim, but maybe what is the most prudent form of reconciliation or extending yourself to your enemy. When will you be when, when will you have the most like, greatest likelihood of actually reconciling? When they understand how strong you are? Or when, you're, when they uh, see you as willing to appease them? Is the Sforno stretching? Yeah, where the Sforno... I don't know exactly how the Sforno is going to explain. This is a gift which was sent. A gift which was sent. You know, it, it was going to Esav regardless whether he was in Seir or there it was just a question of whether or not they, they were going to meet him on the road and yeah but he said look at the Sforno again Yaakov commanded his, his messenger his ambassador don't don't present yourself as if you recognize Esav and that you're sent towards him lest lest he know, Esav, that Yaakov's aware that you're heading towards him, and he sent this gift out of fear. Well, presumably, Esav would have identified himself. So by the time this conversation took place, they would know it's Esav, and, and they could still pull it off as if, you know, they, yeah, they, just, they, it, they were planning to go to Esav. It's hard to explain with the Apostle, which says, 
the Amarta, Yaakov tells the, the agent, tell them that it belongs to Yaakov, and this is a gift sent to Esau. I'm not sure. Advance, he had advance notice anyway. They said Esau was coming with 400 men. I understand. But Yaakov, when he meets him, does he want Esau to say, wow, look at this army, he's a little afraid? Or does he want Esau to say, well, if they're willing to throw these gifts at me, it means they're willing to settle... You know, in negotiations, if you're willing to, then that's a... Just hold all the questions and comments again because the people listening at home um, prefer that there not be any breaks. So let's keep going. Now, here's what's also interesting. A Yaakov tells him, V'yamart and tell him, V'inei gam hu achareinu. Tell him, he is behind us. He is behind us. Now what to, what impression does that leave he's behind us? So on the one hand, it could leave a position of strength. You know, the Godfather sends out... Sometimes the, the person who's really in power doesn't present themselves. They're a little bit enigmatic. There's a little bit distance. They're a little bit mysterious. They don't come out front right away. So Yaakov lagging behind a day or two, and Esav having to first encounter his entourage and his caravan could leave him with an impression of Yaakov being stronger. That's one possibility. On the other hand, look at the Orachayim. The Orachayim says, Yaakov maybe should be out front. He's the leader, he's the captain, he's the general. Or at least minimally he should be with the group. Forgive us first, and then he'll show his face. So that reflects a little bit of, I don't know if it's cowardice, but fear on Yaakov's behalf. Yaakov says, you know what? Let the first group meet him, feel him out, get an impression. Is he willing to forgive? If he's willing to forgive, then Yaakov says, I'll bring up the rear, no problem. If he's not willing to forgive and he meets the group and he says, where is that guy? Where's my brother? I'm going to kill him. Then Yaakov in the back can avoid the confrontation because as we'll talk about momentarily, Yaakov has an avoidance issue. It seems that Yaakov has a major avoidance issue issue, which we have a pattern of. So let's keep going. I'm sorry, 20. And Yaakov commanded the second group and the third group and all the groups saying, When you encounter Esav, every one of your groups should have the same conversation. We belong to Yaakov. These are his goods. He sent them to appease you. And you should say that your servant Yaakov is also behind us. What the Orachayim said is essentially in the Pasuk itself. The way you should communicate is that Yaakov is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the, tr- with the gift first that precedes me, and afterwards I'll face him, perhaps he will forgive me. So Yaakov sent and distributed these gifts ahead of him, and he went to sleep that night in the camp. Okay, so that's the backdrop to the story, is that he's setting aside these goods, he's breaking them into groups, he's creating some distance between them in their travel, in their journey, he's giving them the script of what to say to Esav, everything is set, prepared, ready to go in the morning, he's going to Chapashlov, he's ready to go to sleep, he's ready to, uh, to encamp for the night. Where does he go to sleep, by the way? Vuhulan Balayla. Hahu, where? Bamachane. Where would you expect him to sleep? Why is it telling us Bamachana? As opposed to where? So look at the Ramban. The Ramban, Nachmanides, Vuhulan, Balaylahu, Bamachana. Yomashalobah, Be'ohalo, Balaylahu. He didn't go back into his tent. But rather, Avalan, Bamachana, Im Avada, Vim Haroim Batson, Aruch, Kish, Melchama, Penyavo, Achiv, Balayla, Viakebo. He didn't go back into the safety and the security of his ivory tower, of his palace, of a, of a tent, even though he could have. He, after all, was the owner of all this property, the leader of all these people. But rather, he grew, joined the Hamonam, he joined the group. He slept in the camp because he was preparing for war. And when you're in war, you don't, the general doesn't go back to his cabin. He's with his men. He's with his troops. He's prepared to be attacked. So the Ramban gleans all of this from Layalam Balaylahu Bamachana. He understands it, Bamachana. Now what happens? The first camp, the second camp, the third camp. He's with the camp, the general camp. 
he wakes up that night. He wakes up and he takes his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and his two maidservants, and his eleven children, and he goes across the river by Avor, across the uh, valley, Ma'avar Yabok. He crosses the valley of Yabok. Now, his eleven children, look at the Rashi, Pasuk Chav Gimel. Vidina Heichan Haisa. What do you mean eleven children? He's got twelve. He's got eleven boys and he's got a daughter, Dina. Where is Dina? Why doesn't the Pasuk acknowledge Dina? Says Rashi, Nasna Bateva Bifaneha. He put her in the suitcase. He put her in the trunk. And he locked it. Or I shall eat by Esav Enav. Because Yaakov had a big fear. Maybe more than losing his life is that his brother was going to have eyes for his daughter. He knew his brother to be a womanizer. He knew his brother to be a rapist, molester, abuser. He was not going to expose his beautiful daughter to his brother. And Yaakov was punished for this. First of all, he was punished because he, he um, withheld her from his brother and maybe his brother would have done tshuva. Maybe he should have had a little more faith in his brother that his brother wasn't this wicked guy. I would also say that God again promised him everything's going to be good. What are you worried about? Your daughter being raped by your brother. Every God promised you everything's going to be good. So Rashi understands that Yaakov, the whole incident of Dina being captured by Shechem was Mida Keneged Mida. It was measure for measure. Yaakov says to himself, I'm going to protect Dina from my brother even though God said everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. So God says, you feel you need to protect Dina from your brother? I'll give you someone you have to protect Dina from. And Dina gets captured by Shechem. So Rashi sees that as measure for measure, a punishment to Yaakov for the fact that he didn't have complete faith in Hashem and for the fact that he didn't have faith in his brother, that his brother could repair his ways. Okay. Now, the Ramban says something else that's very significant here. What's going on in the chronology here? What happens? They go to sleep and then Yaakov wakes up in the middle of the night and says, Come, wives, maidservants, kids... Get your sister in the suitcase. Let's go. We're heading out. And didn't they just lie down to go to sleep? What's going on here? So the Ramban was bothered by that too. The Ramban was bothered by that as well. And the Ramban says, Ein muktama This verse is really non-chronological. He gathers them all, they come to the edge of the river. He crosses the river, he's checking the depth of the water to see whether they'll be able to cross successfully. He brings them across. He brings them all across. And then he goes back to get property. That's what's going on in this in this process. So he brings them across the river and he goes back. What did he go back for? Says Rashi, The Gemara Chulun says he forgot small jugs and he went back to get them. And he went back to get them. What? Small jugs. He went back to get them. He's moving tons of people. He's got his 11 kids and he's got his two wives and two maidservants. So that's 15 right there. And then he's got tons of servants and incredible amounts of cattle. And he's got, he's moving a ton of people, a ton of property. And he's got little earthenware vessels. Who cares? What do you mean he goes back to get them? Shachach pachim ketanim v'chazar aleim. He forgot these small jugs and he went back to get them. What does that mean? What does that mean? So there's a medrash which says that this was not just an ordinary jug, this was an extraordinary jug. What did he go back to get? It says when he left his brother's home, when he left his parents' home and was fleeing for his life from his brother, Saisav went to his son Eliphaz and he said, Quick, run after him, I want you to kill him. I want you to kill your uncle. So Eliphaz catches up with Uncle Yaakov and he says to Yaakov, I hate to do this to you. Remember, there's one thing that Esav is fantastic at. Esav excels at honoring his parents. Excels. 
our rabbis instruct us to look to Esav as a role model for what it means to honor one's parents. Again, it's complicated why Esav specifically excels in that area and does he excel genuinely, authentically. But Esav excels and he's taught his son Eliphaz as well the value of honoring your parents. So Eliphaz comes to Uncle Yaakov and he's got a problem. He says, listen, Uncle, on the one hand, I can't kill you, it's murder. The other hand, I've got to honor my father. My father said to kill you. What do I do? So you know how Yaakov told him? Gemara tells us, Ani chashev kameis. A poor person is considered as if they're dead. They have no resources, no ability to sustain themselves. They're lonely. A poor, indigent, impoverished person is considered dead even in their life. So Yaakov says, take everything I have. And you can tell your father you killed me. It's as if you killed me because a poor person is considered dead. So Esav took everything. Uh, Eliphaz took everything. And Yaakov went on his way. Eliphaz was able to say that he completed, fulfilled both values. But Yaakov had one little jug left. The jug was a jug of olive oil. And how did Yaakov sustain himself? Because every time he would sell that olive oil, you know what happened in that jug? It filled up miraculously again. And this was his magic jug that miraculously filled up again and again. And the Medrash tells us this jug was handed down to his children and their children. And that this was the jug that Aaron used to anoint his children. This was the jug that Eliyahu Navi used. This was the same jug of oil. And there's a connection. We often read Parshas Vayishlach right before a certain holiday, which I hope now has come to your mind about a jug and oil that replenishes itself. And that is the holiday of Hanukkah. Holiday of Hanukkah, this mystical, magical jug, and oil that lasts a lot longer than it's supposed to. And there are many connections. Uh, Rabbi Matis Weinberg, in his book, Frameworks, I think it's called. Is that what it's called? Has, I believe, an essay on this topic of the Pachem Ketanim, the small jugs connecting Yaakov and Vayishlach with the story of Hanukkah. But there's another understanding. The Gemara says that you see from the fact that Yaakov went back for Pachem Ketanim that Sadikim are Chasa Amamunam that righteous people care about their money. Righteous people care about their money. Now I read that and I get these like anti-Semitic imagery of the Jew who bends down to pick up a penny, of the Jew who negotiates, who Jews people down. You know, I think it reflects so negatively. So what do you mean a righteous person is chasa al-mamonam? The righteous person specifically is careful and vigilant and scrupulous about their money? What does that mean? Are we so materialistic? I would think the opposite. The righteous person is so spiritual, is so transcendent, they live in the clouds. They're not worried about picking down, bending down for the dollar bill. They're, they're worried about uh, pursuing spiritual pursuits. What does it mean? So I don't want to dwell on this too much. I want to get back to the text. But I think what it means is that the righteous person understands that every material good possession has a purpose, has a value, exists to advance a reason. They don't pursue the material because they think the material inherently has value. They're not in the pursuit of the material for their own pleasure. But the righteous person understands that every material possession, every good, every asset can be used to advance a godly mission in this world. The Gemara says that a person who eats food and doesn't make a bracha, a person who eats and does not make a bracha, somebody who eats, hanenem in olam bracha, ki'ilum mo'al. What's me'ila? Me'ila is a biblical transgression. It's stealing from the temple. Stealing from consecrated property, you're stealing from the temple. What are you talking about? Stealing from the temple? I take a bite out of an apple and I forgot to make a bracha. It's like I stole from the temple. You're going to make that the same as I went into the Aron, I took the Sefer Torah and I stole it? I went to the shul and I stole a sitter, a chumash? I stole? Because I took a bite out of an apple without making a bracha? What do you see about the apple? That from our perspective, there's no difference between the apple and the Sefer Torah in the shul. That an apple is as holy an object as a Sefer Torah. Because God has given us this world, every physical possession can be used to advance the spiritual pursuit. So the righteous person understands that even the pacham ketanim, even the small, seemingly insignificant, seemingly um, unimportant jug has value and goes back and protects even the small insignificant thing. But of course it was part of the master plan. Now I'd like to suggest, by the way, that the reason it has the Vayalan Sham Lahu and then tells us the gift is, because you'd think, it sounds like Yaakov is a very, um, what's the word, opposite of generous? 
miserly, stingy kind of person. Because he went back even to collect a small jug. But Yaakov is not stingy at all because look at how generous he is in the gifts that he gives Esav. So perhaps I'd like to suggest that maybe the Torah enumerates all these gifts even though it seems out of order and out of place to tell us lest you think that Yaakov went back to get these jugs, these small pachim because he's miserly, stingy, cheap. Know that he did it because he sees the value of every physical object. Now what happens when Yaakov goes back? He crosses the valley, the river, to go back to get these small jugs and he finds himself alone. Vayivasar Yaakov levadeh, pasuk chafei. Yaakov finds himself alone. Vayayavek ishimo, and he wrestles with a man adalos hashachar till the morning. Vayarki lo yacholo. Now this is a very unusual, very enigmatic section here. Yaakov's left alone. Somebody wrestles with him till the break of dawn. So what happens? Now we have an incredible series of pronouns. We don't know who's he, 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 he. He perceived that he could not overcome him. He struck the socket of his hip. Who saw he, who they couldn't overcome the other? So the simple understanding is the angel saw this man, his adversary, however we'll describe him momentarily, the adversary saw that he couldn't defeat Yaakov. So what did he do? He gave him a good zetz, a good knock right in the hip. And Vateka Kaf Yerach Yaakov Imo, he dislocates Yaakov's hip and he severs or hurts the sciatic nerve. He says to him, Let me go, set me free, it's the morning. Who is the he? He said to him. Who's requesting being set free? A lot of pronouns here. I won't send you until you give me a blessing. He said to him, What's your name? At least in that verse we know who's talking to who. But until then, understand the ambiguity. So many pronouns. He said to him, he wrestled with him, he heard it. Finally, he said to him, What's your name? He answered, Yaakov. They will not pronounce your name any further as Yaakov. Your name is not Yaakov. Why? You wrestled with God and with man, and you persevered. You overcame. Yaakov says, Okay, now that you know my name, let's get on an equal playing field. What's your name? Why are you asking my name? He blessed him there. Who blessed who? (laughs) So again, we don't have time. We only have a few minutes left. If we had time, we could spend just on these few verses themselves. Because as you can guess, the verses could be interpreted in many different directions. Who's the he, 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 he? All these pronouns. Who's asking who? What question? What's happening here? What's going on? But there's some fundamental questions. Notice, it never tells us what they're wrestling about. It never tells us what they're wrestling about. <clears throat> Usually when people wrestle, when they fight, it's over money, it's over women, it's over power. What are Yaakov and this adversary, whoever this adversary is, what are they wrestling about? What are they fighting about? But Salavechik suggested beautifully that the text, by design, does not tell us what they're wrestling about because it doesn't matter. What matters is that Yaakov is wrestling. Yaakov is wrestling with himself. This is a Yetzirah, this is an inner voice, this is a voice of doubt. Yaakov is struggling. And Rabbi Salavechik concluded from this section that Yaakov is creating a precedent and a model to us of being engaged in the struggle. That one of the critical values in life is never to be complacent and apathetic, never to be satisfied, but to be engaged in the struggle. Because only the struggle yields growth. It is the struggle, it is the tension, it is the fight, it is the conflict which yields growth. So the Rav suggested it never tells us what Yaakov was fighting about intentionally to tell us that what they were fighting about is unimportant. What's important is that they're fighting. Now by the way, the Zohar tells us when was this? What date on the Jewish calendar was this night? You know what night it was on the Jewish calendar? Or how it corresponds with our observance of our Jewish calendar? Yaakov wrestled with the angel on Kol Nidre night. Kol Nidre night, says the Zohar. Yaakov goes back and he wrestles with the angel. I once gave a Kol Nidre drasha 
Shema Abedesina when he remembers, I could use it again next year, that that notion of Yaakov being Levado alone is what should permeate our Yom Kippur experience. Yom Kippur, we retreat into our own cocoon and spend 25 hours in a wrestling match with ourselves. What we're wrestling about is unimportant. What's important is that we're engaged in the wrestle. We're engaged in the struggle. Because that's how we advance, that's how we progress, that's how we grow. I mean, person wants to build their muscles, you go to the gym and work out. You know what you're doing when you're lifting weights? You're literally stretching your muscles till they tear, and when they repair themselves, you've grown your muscle. What happens when you lie in a hospital bed, and they don't move you, they don't turn you over, you don't get up, you don't sit up, you don't walk. You know what happens to your muscles? They atrophy, they die. So what's true for the muscles is true for the spiritual muscles. When we stretch them and tear them and struggle, they struggle, they grow. And when they sit still and do nothing, they atrophy, they die. So what they're fighting about is unimportant. What's important is being engaged in the struggle. That's what, yeah, that's what, that's what uh, the Rav took out of here. He didn't make this point, but I will. That also explains at the end, you know, the, if you assume it's the angel, when Yaakov says, let me go, give me your name, don't give me your name, and they go back and forth, the blessing, Vayavarech so Shami blessed him. What did he bless him? Longevity, nachas, good health, prosperity. What was the blessing? Doesn't say. Because that too is unimportant. In other words, the blessing corresponds with whatever the struggle was. So, if you struggled and grew, the blessing is having struggled. It doesn't need to say what the blessing is. You know what the blessing was? That you were engaged in the struggle. That is the goal. That is what we're supposed to do. So that's... Rabbi Soloveitchik, that's Rabbi Soloveitchik's interpretation, is that Yaakov is engaged in a struggling match. What they're fighting about is unimportant. What's the blessing? Just having been engaged in the struggle. That's how the Rav interpreted what's going on here. But I want to share with you a Rashbam that's going to blow your mind. Because this Rashbam, this Rashbam really startled me. Look at the Rashbam on Pasuk Chav Gimel. It's in the comment of Vayakam Balai Lahahu. Yaakov wakes up in the middle of the night. You know why he's waking up in the middle of the night? Says the Rashbam. No one else we saw really answered this question. Right? They set it all up. They've got the gifts. They're going to send it. They take a nap. They're going to sleep for the night. Yaakov wakes up in the middle of the night. And the answer is not because he goes to the bathroom 17 times in the middle of the night. The Rashbam says, Why did he wake up in the middle of the night? Nitzchaven Levroach Derech Acheres. Because Yaakov got cold feet. And Yaakov had a plan. He's out of there. He is not ready to meet Esav. Again, if I would have suggested this, you would say, Goldberg's a little bit of a heretic. He's Yaakov Avinu. Who could talk about Yaakov, our forefather, in this way? Bishmet Rashbam says that Yaakov woke up in the middle of the night and he had this plan. He's going to send his family, his servants, everybody, say, I just got to go back to get something. And he's out of there. He's got cold feet. He's booking. Can you imagine? Look at it in black and white. He planned to flee a different way. The Rashbam brings a precedent. It's not a precedent. David comes later. But you have a similar incident with David HaMelech. And the Rashbam actually accuses Yaakov of wanting to flee. Of wanting to run. Yaakov gets cold feet. What do you see about Yaakov? Yaakov has this major aversion to conflict. What happens? Rather than confront his father and say, I deserve the blessings... What does he do? He disguises himself. Okay, his mother instructed him to do that. But Yaakov really should have gone to his father and said, Listen, Pop. Listen, Dad. Listen, Tati. I purchased the birthright. They're coming to me. I get the blessing. But he had this aversion to conflict. So he disguises himself. And then Yaakov comes to the house of Lavan and he sold a bad bill. Really, he's supposed to marry Rachel. She's exchanged for Leah. Does he confront his father-in-law? Can't bring himself to he decides it's time to take leave. Does he say goodbye? No. No. Rather than 
face conflict, he flees in the middle of the night with his wives, and so on. Yaakov has a major aversion to conflict. And even now, he's about to be reunited with Esav, says the Rashbam, he's not ready. He went back and he created this whole scheme and strategy because he was out of there. But rather than being able to get out of there, what happens? Continue in the Rashbam, Pasul Chavei, Vayivaser Yaakov Levado, he finds himself alone. He's all alone. The only thing left now to join them is him. And why was he alone? Because he planned on booking out and getting out of there. God sent this angel to wrestle with him to prevent him from running away. God says, Yaakov, you spend your whole life on the run. It's over. It's over. You can't continue to run away. God says, I made a promise to you. You have a destiny to live. Stop running away from it. You can't run away from your future. You can't run away from what destiny has in store for you, says God. Stop running away. So Yaakov runs. Yaakov creates a scheme so that he could find himself alone and he's on his way, he's about to run and God sends an angel to wrestle with him. You can't run anymore. It's a very powerful message of the Rashbam. What I take away from here is the idea that in life, stop, people have an avoidance syndrome. They're constantly avoiding their destiny. What destiny keeps presenting towards them that they have to confront, they keep trying to avoid. The Rashbam is saying the Torah is teaching, stop avoiding. Confront your destiny. What it holds for you, you're going to have to live. Yaakov therefore wrestles, you're not going to. Now the Kliyakar, look at the Kliyakar. Pasuk Chavtes. Pasuk Chavtes. Says the Kliyakar. And we're going to end with this Kliyakar. There's so much more to talk about. But we'll end with this Kliyakar. Chavtes, 29. What's his name? The angel changes his name. He wrestles. He can't avoid any longer. And after having to confront his destiny, he gets a new name, which is Yisrael. Says the Kliyakar, Lashon Yashar El. Ki Yashar hu Lashon Ri'iya. Mi Lashon Ashirenu v'lo Karov. V'hodu lo ki Yaakov ro'eh panei kel. V'lo also biyado l'sameos b'metzios ha'kel Yisbarach. Yaakov sees God. Yisrael Yashar comes from the language of to see. Yaakov see Yisrael. Yaakov saw God. Yaakov means a heel. It's your Achilles heel. Is to be a man. Is to be restricted. Is to be limited. Yisrael Lashon Mishor. It doesn't just mean to be straight in the eyes of man, but Yaakov goes from being Achav, having an Achilles heel, having a weakness, to being Yashar, to being straight in the eyes of God. You wrestled with God and with man. But listen to what the Kliyaka writes. That's what he writes. What else did he write? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Who was the angel? I'm sorry. I read the wrong Kliyakar. I wanted to read the Kliyakar on Chafhei. Who was this angel that Yaakov wrestled with? Go back to the Kliyakar Ampasa Chafei, that's the one I meant to read. Binyan is Avkusim Yaakov Rabu Adeos. This issue of wrestling, that Yaakov wrestled, there's many opinions. Who did he wrestle with? What did they wrestle about? What's going on? By the way, I'll remind you, I mentioned it last week. The Rambam writes in Moranavuchim, this whole thing never happened. This was a dream. Yaakov had a dream. This was a premonition. It was a prophecy that he wrestled. It never happened. The Ramban asks, how can you say it's a dream? He woke up and he had a limp. The Ritva, a student of the Ramban, 
Rav Yom Tov writes, Ritva, that defending the Rambam, that he had that limp because it was psychosomatic disorder. He had this dream, this prophecy, this premonition that he wrestled with the angel and that he was struck in the leg. When he woke up, he carried his limp forever because it was a psychosomatic disorder. That's the Rambam's philosophy throughout Chumash, is that these things didn't happen. They were dreams. Bilam's donkey didn't really talk and Yaakov didn't really wrestle with an angel and so on. But most people assume that there was a real wrestling. The Ramban assumes that there was a real wrestling match. It really took place. And the Kliyakar says, who did he wrestle with? What did they wrestle about? So he says, This angel that he wrestled with is known as Samael, the angel of Esav. What does the word Sama mean? Blind. This angel has one mission and one goal. To blind the eyes of his victims. What is he trying to blind them from? From common sense. He's trying to blind them from common logic. He's trying to blind them so that a person, his victim, the victim of this angel, Samael, doesn't think, doesn't arrive at the truth based on logic, but rather is distorted and perverted in their thinking till they arrive at a distorted version of the truth. So that they don't come liros pnei Hashem lavo besod Hashem liriav besisrei Torah kiu Satan who malach hamaves who yetsahara the remez ladavar ki Samael shutfu shel anavim ba'alpha beisa ba'osos shnios right take the word Samael and every letter replace it with the next letter in the alphabet after the Samach comes a ayin after the mem comes nun after the aleph comes beis and after the lamed comes mem. Aleph, Nun, Beis, Mem are the letters after Samach, Mem, Aleph, Lamed. So corresponding with Samael is Anavam, which means grapes, wine. Just like wine intoxicates a person so they can't think clearly. They become drunk to their own reality. They're not arriving at truth. Similarly, Samael, this angel, seeks to distort our own thinking and to blunt our own reality and our own logic. A, a drunk person walks like they're blind. The angel Samael is the partner of alcohol. So he goes on and on. This is a long kliyakar, but basically, what he says, what we're, what we're, what we are wrestling with is our yetsahara. And how does the yetsahara work? Yetsahara works to cloud our thinking. And how does it cloud our thinking? Because it seduces us. Why do we make self-destructive decisions? Why do we regularly give in to a voice that says, do something? Right? I'll give you not a religious example, I'll give you a health example. We know that we shouldn't have that piece of chocolate cake. But how does the Yetzirah work? If I just use my logic, I would say, that piece of chocolate cake has sugar and carbs. That piece of chocolate cake is unhealthy for me. My cholesterol is going to go up. It's going to affect my blood pressure. I'm going to get diabetes. I'm going to get fat and obese. If I only use logic, of course I'll avoid the chocolate cake. It's poison to me. It's going to kill me. So how does the Yitzhahara work? How does it seduce us? It blinds our eyes and our logic. And it says, I had a piece of chocolate cake last week. It didn't kill you. And this chocolate cake, you know, you skipped breakfast this morning. So you had chocolate cake at dinner. That took the place of all of breakfast this morning. And how often do you have chocolate cake? It's a special occasion. This is a special chocolate cake. And all kinds of logic the Yitzhahara uses what's the ultimate strategy is to cloud our logical thinking and to blind us to the truth. So says the Kliyakar, the angel that Yaakov is wrestling with is this angel of Samael. There is a piece of Esav in every one of us that seeks to seduce us to give in, to cloud our logical thinking, to cloud what is, makes sense for us and rather instead to engage in self-destructive behavior. And we 
carry that injury of Yaakov with us to remember the casualty of giving in to this Yetzirah and how we need to be able to defeat it. There's so much more that goes on here. And that's the name Yisrael, Yashar. We could remain straight and truth. We can maintain our logical thinking like our forefather in, able to, in order to be able to overcome. Again, there's a lot more to talk about on this passage and in general, but we will stop here. Have a wonderful rest of the week in Shabbos. Thank <laughs> you.